think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And either they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 13 of Boys in Short Pants, the 14th episode, the late edition. Sorry about that. The very late edition. The very late edition. It's Thursday, we usually get an episode on a we Sunday. We insist you listen to this after 10 o'clock p.m. now. Absolutely, you have to catch up. Uh, yeah, apologies for that. We had finals, etc. You got busy, whatever. Uh, well, mo- moving on. Mostly because I was in Vermont building a beer collection. But... Mostly that. Also, we had a final. But mm-hmm. uh, Etienne, I see, is... The- dedicated to taking sympathy away from us right at the very beginning so thanks for that again no worries very good i do my best you do your best indeed um so over the last week uh it's actually been a pretty busy week for us in the sense that we had uh we went to the uh the broadband progress summit the broadband institute's progress summit uh which is sort of the the large gathering of of progressives whatever the hell that means uh in ottawa that usually in ottawa takes place every year uh sort of to match uh the Manning Conference that is put on by the, the Manning Institute that or Center Manning Center that Manning we went Center. to uh, a month or two ago uh, for the Conservatives. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, I was there the whole time. Uh, Tian was there for the first day. Less, probably yeah, a little, like a, a, quarter, a quarter of it. Because once again, uh, he had to go to Vermont to go buy some beer. That's correct. Uh, so you know, free the beer. Uh, free, free the beer. Conservatives are nothing if not dedicated to their their talking points, and uh, so you know, gotta respect that. Uh, so Etienne, what did you think? Uh, so I have a very limited impression that I can only comment in a very limited capacity. Um, based sort of superficially on what I saw, it made me want to be more conservative. It's sort of like a Christian in a casino who rededicates himself to God. Yeah, no, I feel like that's kind of felt it manning too. This is, uh, that, that was my takeaway. Yeah. Especially, there were a lot of stereotypes. I, I know you felt the same way at Manning. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Okay, and we did. This didn't make the final cut of the Manning episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tian is telling me I can't go where I want to go, so but, we'll, we'll leave it there. What I was gonna say was the the MC, at least for the section I was at, was like super stereotypical. And at one point, I think I was asked to close my eyes and wave my arms around like seaweed. <laughs> And pretend that I was in an ideal world or something along these lines. Yeah, so. we, we do a lot of that. Oh, one, of, one of our other uh, lefty friends sent me a Facebook message while that was going on to say, this is why people hate the left. Um, Understandably. And I, at, like basically within a minute or two of you sending your, this makes me want to be more conservative message. <laughs> so that was like very well timed. Uh, I think there was a consensus there between the, the left and the right um, on that was a bit weird. But... Uh, apart from that, it was it was pretty good. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, it was it, you know like it's it's always good to just hang out and kind of listen to some panels, go schmooze a bit. I'm a terrible schmoozer, so that part actually kind of sucks. But whatever. The rest of it is good. Uh, we have there were some good panels as well. Uh, there was one on like uh, is social democracy the only viable option in the future or something along those lines uh, that had Ed Broadbent on it. Uh, Did you start throwing? Like communist manifestos onto the stage. I, I should have. I was actually a little frustrated by that because it just seems like in a post-Bernie world, like it seems odd to just like be so deathly afraid of the the S word, um, to the degree that they they clearly were scuba diving. Scuba, yeah, no, I, socialism. You know, I am also afraid of scuba diving. Right, fair enough. Oh, me too. Yeah, Ugh, oceans. Anyway, um, scary stuff. Uh, so th- that was a bit odd. Uh, I found that just the, the sort of like total unwillingness to even like go there at all in any way but when you're appealing to quote-unquote progressives which is like a broad meaningless term that i despise i guess you sort of have to just take your lumps 
Uh, I will say the food is pretty good. Okay. That, that was nice. Yeah, yeah, there was a little poutine station on the first night, which is kind of cool. Ooh, very I enjoyed nice. Enjoyed that. Yeah. There you go. Um, also, there was a policy debate. Uh, the la- that was kind of the last event, last big event on uh, free trade. And it was kind of like the, the the question was like, be it resolved that like, and then the question was this incredibly torqued like that free trade is destroying community. Free trade ruins the world. It, basically, well, it was actually like it all- doesn't produce cheaper consumer goods for everyone and raise everyone's standard of living and increase economic growth all across the world. But instead, we should have protectionist measures, a la Donald Trump. I will. I will come back to that. Uh, they were <laughs> the emphasis is on trade deals have not helped or whatever. Correct. Um, and I found that the ensuing debate was. I, I have to give credit to the uh, the side the the quote unquote f- pro trade agreement side. Yep. Uh, that was made up of uh, Chris Reagan. Chris Reagan, author of. Uh, Probably your macro and microeconomics textbook if you went to a Canadian university. Okay. Um, and uh, Brett Hauser, who is a chief or like an economist at Scotiabank. I don't know if he's a chief economist or not. But anyway, they were. That's a tough. That's a tough gig in front of that crowd, and the crowd is quite rowdy. And it was a bit of a carnival atmosphere, which is fun, but didn't make for a great like policy debate. Um, but I, I found I, I found this before. Like whenever there's sort of conversation about trade between small l liberals and you know leftists is that we're always talking about two entirely different things is that the liberals want to talk about david ricardo and comparative advantage and the sort of theory of free trade and leftists want to talk about like actually existing trade agreements and like the sort of interests that go into shaping those and like how they like we have not compensated losers because that was the theory right was that like okay so you're gonna have winners and losers in free trade so you have the winners compensate the losers. Everyone ends up better off overall. That like hasn't happened. I think that's pretty uncontroversial to say in most cases. So like this unwillingness to talk about the same thing is really really frustrating to me. Uh, more so on the liberal side because I think leftists, myself included, are quite happy to acknowledge that in theory, free trade, like overall, like benefits everyone by increasing productivity, etc. I'm like fine with free trade in theory. Woo! Woo! Yeah, you got me. Uh, <laughs> but and no, we'll leave it there. <laughs> but the free trade in practice thing, I just think is something that like should at least be acknowledged as like possibly a problem. Like instead of just like always reverting back to like, oh well, the Corn Laws debate in 1825 is just like we're not talking about the same thing at that point. I find that really really frustrating. Um, so those are those are my impressions from from that policy debate. Tim was not there, so I don't know if he has a. Yeah, I can't I can't really push back. Yeah, I, uh, I wasn't present. How, how, do, you, do you have any thoughts about the broader trade debate? And uh... um, no, but I'm gonna jump back to Broadmouth for a second. Oh yeah, go ahead. To say, I'm actually gonna poke two criticisms because I have nothing to add to trade. I'm instead gonna criticize Broadbent on incredibly superficial things, namely their choice of venue. Which apparently was chosen because they need unionized staff. Mm. That this was like a prerequisite. That and makes sense. As a result, the hotel was way too small. Oh, that was fine. No, it was terrible. Like, the the hotel is a nice hotel, but for the size of people they were trying to accommodate, way There's too a small. Lot of shooting themselves in the foot by requiring unionized staff, but here, here they are dying well, on the principles. Well, I think what we gotta do is just unionize more hotels. That's one solution. <laughs> Perhaps not the solution I would pursue. I do not doubt that. And then my other criticism of Broadbent was, uh, this is sort of uh, a structural one, 
was that it was running during a sitting week of Parliament, where Manning runs theirs during break weeks. Yeah. And the difference is, at Manning, you see a room full of reporters at the back of the room taking notes and tweeting, because the reporters have nothing else to do. Yeah. And there's also MPs in the crowd and asking questions and milling about and meeting people... And leadership candidates are there for the yeah. entire day. Well, and also and that if, you're, sort of thing. if you're there, like, if you're a think tank, right, which Robin ostensibly is, yeah, you want people exposed to your ideas, yes. right? So like not having decision makers there, yeah. because they're busy in you know, Parliament like, in doing Parliament. votes and having yeah. other obligations. People say that during break weeks, like MPs fly back to their riding. MPs won't fly back to their riding for as long if there is a significant event in Ottawa that everyone yeah. is going to. Yeah, exactly. And they're, they're like anybody else. Yeah, yeah, it's a one year or it's a once a year thing for the NDP or for progressives, <laughs> and so NDP can or NDP MPs as well as leadership candidates would have been there the entire time. Are they not stupidly scheduled it over a break week? I thought that's a bit odd. A, I mean, over a sitting week. I'm sure that occurred to them. Actually, you know what? It maybe didn't because they are based in Toronto, and I found that people in Toronto have absolutely no idea how Ottawa works at all. Or maybe they just were shooting themselves in the foot because it was the only weekend, or it was the only week where they could get their one unionized hotel. It is possible to open up a ballroom big enough for some ridiculous series of events. But huge, huge criticism. It's uh, incredibly counterproductive for them. I I would tend to agree, except with the, the part about I mean. I get why you do that with unionized hotels. Like otherwise, it's kind of hypocritical the whole the, thing. But anyway. the only united or the only unionized hotel is uh, unfortunately it's the Motel Eight on the highway outside of town. So Come on, that's where the conference is today, boys. Well, you gotta like I said, you gotta unionize more hotels. Uh, Etienne, you got mad online uh, last week about an article on the Tai. As as I often do, I as, just I just rarely put it into words. That that is fair. Um, so this is a little bit about your area of specialty. Uh, do you want to... Yeah, so there's an article that was published by the TAI um, entitled Anti-Terror Laws Already Eroding Free Speech, comma, Debate. I don't know why that debate's thrown in there. Free speech and debate. Oh, okay. They, that was poorly structured. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so the, the story behind the article is that there's this Italian political philosophy professor uh, named Antonio Negri. And he was a controversial figure in Italy, and he's sort of on the left side of the political spectrum, against neoliberalism, all that, all that jazz, sort of standard far left. Um, so Negri was arrested in 1979 uh, in Italy, accused of insurrection. Charges were later dropped. Um, he was eventually locked up, or some of the charges were later dropped. He eventually went to prison. On release, he escaped prison, went to France for 14 years in exile, and then uh, had a plea agreement and came back and eventually served time in Italian prison for, I think the final charge was insurrection. Oh, that owns actually. That owns. <laughs> very, very good. Um, so the story is, Negri was invited to a conference by some University of Calgary professors here in Canada. And when he went to do what's called his electronic travel authorization to apply for his papers to come to Canada, he was denied. Um, the authors of the article, who are University of Calgary political science professors, state in their article that the reason his papers were denied is because of the secret powers of Bill C-51. Utterly nonsense. Right. Do you want to... 
give some background with your your personal background at C51 here, just for, for clarity's sake. So, uh, well, in government, I worked on C51, and I'm a pretty vocal proponent of C51. I personally don't love it, to put it mildly. As, as should be expected from your uh, political persuasion. Right. And uh, I, I will say this in a fan's defense, which I, I just think it is the most, like, brass bald thing I've ever witnessed is that Etienne has a a framed copy of C51 signed by the minister uh, hanging in his apartment. Absolutely. Uh, it's quite it's quite the conversation piece. It definitely yeah, I'm sure it's touched off uh, one or two uh, discussions <laughs> before. It's very good when people sort of casually look at it and they're like, "Wait, wait, what's this?" Like, "Oh, oh." <laughs> and that's really when you find out their uh, their political leaning. Yeah, what it was say to it's like, "Thanks for all your hard work right. it, and passion yeah, and passion." Very much so. So, yeah. Um, so this is very much one of the areas I know well, and so when I see an article like this one, it upsets me to a gr degree, um, not because of criticism of Bill C-51, which is fine, because you should be able to criticize whatever you want, but just because it's fundamentally... As long as CSIS is listening, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just because it's fundamentally wrong in everything that it talks about. C-51 would, in my opinion, not that I know any inside knowledge in this case, I've been out of government for a while, um has absolutely nothing to do with this sort of case. Yeah, with well... a foreign national... This is the thing with, with political scientists, right? Is that they don't actually know, know anything about... Know how Yeah, they, well, they know, like, their one part, often. Which, more likely than not, is not about government, if yeah. not Canadian government, if They study, not... like, elections or legislatures or, like, I don't know, like, the keeper of the... Privy Seal or whatever, like it's just the like some, Usher of the Black Rod, yeah, it's just the history of the Usher of the Black Rod, some absolute garbage. But Usher of the Black Rod, for anybody wondering, is basically the Senate equivalent of the uh, Sergeant at Arms. Very true, and yeah. he has some sort of rod that he bears. It with is him. presumably black. I've seen it. I cannot remember what it looks like. I to mean, be honest, I feel like it's uh, overhyped. You it's, guys can probably Google that. Anyway, moving on. Its name sounds like it's from an RPG of some sort. It does. Doesn't. Anyway, sorry. We're we'll getting sidetracked. Um. So specifically in Bill Fifty One, it talks about information sharing, and information sharing as like is about domestic information sharing. It allows departments with national security relevant information to share it with your national uh, security services, be that RCMP, CBSA, CSIS, any of those. In a case where you have a foreign national, unless like CRA somehow has his bank records and has miraculously flagged them, like this is Seems unlikely. It, it's highly unlikely. It's just not a thing, is what I'd say. It's just inconceivable that C-51 would have anything to do with it. What is more conceivable, and one of the points that's made in the article, is that he, in 2003, was previously allowed into the country. So they point to C-51 as the big development between 2003 and today, that is blocking entry to this. I'm sure he's a wonderful left-wing political science professor. I'd like to pause it. What's more likely is the internet. That if you can Google your name and it comes up... Well, it's not even just the internet, right? It's the internet and time. It's the internet and time. But it's also... So the electronic travel authorization, uh, which is what he was applying for and what he was blocked through, and this didn't exist in 2003 basically makes it a more deliberative process before you're allowed entry to the country. Previously, uh, allowing entry is called admissibility. Previously, uh, someone in his position would have come to the border and admissibility would have been determined on the spot. 
with a very limited range of yeah. tools at the sure. disposal of the BSO yeah, the, the border, Services Office. The border agent sees the Italian passport, looks at the stamps. If there's like not like Look, you know back and forth stamps, from Syria or something, scans it. Maybe yeah. there's uh, an Interpol database. I'm not exactly sure on uh, yeah. Europeans. But there's perhaps one or two databases, the name gets run through, no flags, good to go. Yeah. This likely, I'm guessing, would not have come up in 2003, hence his entry to the country. With ETA, and perhaps other developments in you know, information sharing with Europeans and stuff like that, I think it's very likely that this insurrection charge came up. If you Google the man's name, it came up. So it should not be surprising. And if you have a criminal record charge of anything from pot to insurrection to terrorism to treason you're going to have a flag put on you and the decision is going to be made more often than not to not let you into the country so there are situations where individuals are wrongly charged say uh, you're an Iranian or you've lived in Iran and you've been falsely charged with terrorism for you know a Facebook eating, eating a Facebook a post yeah. eating a bagel whatever yeah. it is the suspected, regime of the day suspected ju Judaism <laughs> yeah <laughs> whatever the regime of the day is charging people with right then there's a formal process in place to apply to have this reviewed and to potentially have it overturned this is not a quick process as it requires some deliberation but the point is that if you have a criminal record you shouldn't be allowed into the country without further consideration. Right. So having an individual with insurrection charges on their record in modern day and modern security, this is the success of the system to say, you're going to secondary yeah. screening. You're going to be considered. Please apply through a formal process. Yeah. This happens all the time between Canada and the United States. If you have pot charges or drunk driving charges, they will block you from entry and you have to apply through what's called the waiver system. Mm -hmm. Um, in order for them to assess your criminal charges and look into it and take as much information as possible rather than the spot decision at the border has to be like two minutes of la or less for efficiency reasons like that sort right. of thing. So this article, which becomes critical and conspiratorial, is frankly just misinformed. They have no idea what they're talking about and they try and link in a whole bunch of unrelated things because frankly they're they're ill-informed and they want someone to blame so I think it um, sort of perpetuates like the story was shared some 3,000 times or whatever it lists on Ravels it just perfe perpetuates falsehoods or sorry the tie <laughs> perpetuates falsehoods and coming from academics you'd sort of expect better yeah rather than just off-the-cuff fear-mongering it's yeah, sort it's... of it's sort of a la Andrew Potter but frankly worse in my opinion yeah where Potter was going trying to link together a narrative of like a series of events in Quebec society this is one that's just largely factually false yeah yeah exactly there's no like it's, they're just wrong they're just wrong they, which, have, which they once have, again political they, they refer to like the sea the open secret of c51 is that it's information sharing with the United States and this this and that and it's just all Not all true. misleading conspiracy cool uh, I'm glad glad you got your rant. Yeah, I, I, I needed to get it out. Every now and again, they, they say that on Twitter you should follow a couple of people you disagree with. And every every now and again, I I see the, the tweets from those people and they drive me insane, especially when they're on topics I know. Fair enough. So here we are. All right, so uh, we, we have actually an interview for the rest of the episode. Uh, I was lucky enough to sit down for, for about a half hour with uh, the executive director of Samara. Um, 
Jane Hilderman, and that's that's an organization that does a lot of work on democratic citizenship and promoting it and sort of measuring uh, how, how well Canada does it. Uh, I, I talked to her about, we'll get into this in the interview, but it, they put out a report uh, a week or two ago about uh, sort of a report card for Canadian democracy, and we'll, did, we'll get into that. Did we pass? That. Did we fail? Ooh. How sick is our Canadian democracy? Stick around and find <laughs> out. After the drum beat. Jane Hilderman, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're the ED of Samara, which is an organization based in Toronto that uh, does democracy promotion at home rather than abroad, like many other democracy promotion uh, NGOs. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your work at Samara? Uh, sure. My uh, background, I like to sort of uh, joke, is that I'm, I was on my way to join the public service and took a very long detour. <laughs> Uh, I have long had an interest in government and thought the most practical way to sort of uh, pursue that interest would be through uh, capital P public service. But uh, I spent, after I f finished a degree in public policy, I had the opportunity to come work on the Hill for 10 months, the parliamentary internship program, and oh, that cool. was rather uh, life-altering in the sense that I realized I was sort of missing a huge the other half of like policymaking in Canada, I understood the role of the civil service, but less so uh, the role of our parliamentary institutions. And uh, that ten months of sort of a front row seat uh, of uh, of parliament um, work at work and a government falling and an election being held kind of got me very interested in in, in helping. Canadians better understand the place uh, of those things in our in our system of governance because I saw things that were very inspiring and things that sometimes caused a bit of despair. Uh, and when I finished uh, that opportunity on the Hill, I looked around and was trying to find a way to uh, think about employing that experience uh, for a sense of like how you get how do you get more Canadians thinking about these issues? And Samara Canada was one of the, sort of the few organizations on the radar who uh, was already working uh, to bring attention to how, you know, the role of the MP, uh, how Parliament works, how it could work better, uh, and trying to sort of do it in a more innovative, fun way than um, perhaps had been attempted in the past. So uh, I joined Samara over five years ago, and I'm today now uh, the executive director. Samara Canada is a, an educational charity, so by definition that means we're nonpartisan. Our approach to encouraging that sort of political participation and changing political culture, which is a, an interesting uh, sometimes tension to be in when you're f coming up face to face with the sort of politics mm -hmm. uh, by, that are by definition not nonpartisan. Um, but our work, I think, is really important as we've sort of seen over the last, particularly six months with, uh, or even year with the events in Europe and in the US, that even established democracies are sometimes struggling mm -hmm. uh, to sort of renew their democratic traditions or democratic values. Uh, these can't be assumed to be that, that that will happen on their own. So the the work that sort of Samara undertakes to demystify how the process works for Canadians, ask them to uh, you know join in the process, whether it be through voting or other forms of participation as well, uh, is is why Samara exists. Okay, thanks. Also, for anybody curious about the parliamentary internship program, uh, we had an interview with two of the incumbent parliamentary interns for episode eight, I think. Uh, you guys can look back on the SoundCloud page or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts uh, for that episode and that interview. Uh, so recently you guys put out a report grading Canadian democracy. You guys had done one in 2015, I think shortly after the election? 
Uh, it was uh, headed into the election. Okay. So in both cases, they came out in around March. Okay, okay, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, and last time, uh, Canadian Democracy got a C, mm -hmm. and this time it got a B minus with uh, three grades making that up. It was a B plus in communication, a C plus in participation, and a C in leadership. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about sort of the things that went into that, mm. and uh, especially the recommendations uh, that Samara made, which I think you had five recommendations to strengthen our democratic infrastructure, which, by the way, great way to tie in with uh, governing party priorities. That's uh, <laughs> always good. Uh, so civics education was one. Uh, having more meaningful consultation, uh, increased civility, and uh, more empowered representatives and more diversity. So there are a couple of those I want to talk about, just because uh, I think like we can we can have a fruitful mm -hmm. conversation about what that would mean. Um, first of all, though, I want to ask like your B minus this year, as you mentioned before I asked this question, uh, like this is in a context of a sort of trend away from democracy. I think you could probably say away from full democracy in a lot of countries that previously have had them, and worrying kind of rumbles and even countries that still have full democracies. I, I think I can probably guess your answer, but uh, do you think Canada has any sort of special immunity to this kind of anti-democratic trend? And uh, what about a democratic infrastructure is helping to protect us to whatever degree that it is? Mm -hmm. um, on the first question around immunity, I think... Uh, no, like no, <laughs> because <laughs> I, I, I fear yeah. that it, it, the sort of sense of exceptionalism is what sort of is the, the seed of complacency. Mm -hmm. uh, that yeah, things will just always be okay. Yeah, um, and in fact, said it takes. Uh, turns out, you know, at the, at the end of the day, democracy is about people and people having a voice in mm -hmm. their system, and if they are not sort of stepping up. Uh, and having a system that will sort of uh, be responsive to those voices, we have a serious problem. So uh, in the sense that does Canada's democracy perfectly reflect our voices? No, it probably never has. So there's always kind of that sense of like room for improvement. But um, we should not assume that uh, the problems that we've seen just south of the border or in Europe are uh, somehow... Uh, un impossible to come to Canada. Okay. Um, and if and 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 I think if you're, there's been some speculation that you know these these things are here. They exist. They just perhaps haven't uh, found the toehold in our politics just yet. For mm -hmm. and we could talk maybe like so. Your second question is why? What has happened? What have we maybe been doing a yeah. little bit right that has helped with this thing? Uh, with this reality that we're you know n not quite in the same position. Uh, I think we've been quite lucky that we've made a few strategic decisions along the way to, to uh, sort of diminish um, the role of like kind of uh, private interest or certain specific like core interests from having uh, outmoded out influence in our system. So we figured out a, a few uh, a while ago how to do you know redistricting in a way right. that didn't have politics involved in the way it does in say the US so it's a, it's we've sort of tried to suck out some of the partisan air out of that conversation by having you know uh, yeah. electoral boundary commissions that have ju judges involved and it still has politics yeah, in it but it's, it is uh, a lot different we yeah. also made some smart decisions about political financing that yeah. have over like the last 20 years like you think about it, it wasn't that long ago when that there was no limits on donations and corporations and unions could make those donations and we've slowly kind of constrained uh, that picture such that uh, it's hard for money in in Canadian politics to speak loudly 
yeah, yeah. From, from interests. Yeah. yeah, and you mentioned also like with, with gerrymandering and redistricting. Um, I think a big part of that too is that when you have a two-party system like in the U.S. and you have intense gerrymandering, it is inherently a zero-sum game. So you, you, know, you want to basically just go hard in the paint as much as you humanly can, which sets up some really bad incentives, which, yeah, I think as you point out, we don't have a system that tends to that nearly as much. Yeah, um, and that and that those yeah, and other places have kind of ripple effects. Yeah, about increasing sort of the hyperpartisanship, and then also having the role of corporate influence, sort of really trying to right. be involved in the machinery of governance in un, in, in unhelpful ways. So, right. yeah. Uh, so about the, the first recommendation that Samara pointed out was uh, civics education. So we do have, I think, like most provinces have some form of civics education in their curricula for high school at some point or another. Um, but you also talk about it as being beyond the classroom. Uh, so where do you think civics education, like what, what's the gap right now, either in or outside of the classroom? And uh, like what are some specific ways we can sort of address that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I actually, for us at Smart, I think the most interesting frontier is not necessarily the high school classroom because mm-hmm. it is an area that uh, already has some, right. some quote, infrastructure in place. Yeah, and also, I mean, like, mm-hmm. me taking more math classes wouldn't have made me like math anymore. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just, there's Good a point. certain, like, yeah. yeah, diminishing returns on that. And, and um, absolutely, and I think what we've heard uh, to, uh, from Canadians is, like, that that needs to happen, that's important, but often, yeah, like, out of recognition, I wasn't ready to sort of take to absorb that information when I was in grade 10, for example. Like, I just it didn't mm-hmm. affect me. But now that I'm, you know, that much older, like, I, I now need to know those, those things and I can't remember, like, I can't remember how to solve differential equations, right. which I used to do in high school math. I never got that <laughs> So in some ways, yeah, if you're not using it actively, it's very easy to sort yeah. of lose it. So how do you then get a chance to go and pick it back up again? Yeah. And that's where we found, like, when you're outside of, uh, sort of formal education system, those opportunities to learn are fewer, less commonly found, um, not necessarily, um, and where they do exist, like, it's it's not always uh, maybe the, the, the what you need, at, like, to where it sure. doesn't meet you where you're at yeah. in terms of, like, what you need to know. So that's where our work at Samara has focused more on how to build capacity in, like, community organizations, mm-hmm. ones that, you know, mandates are not necessarily like Samara's and that they are explicitly focused on encouraging democratic participation, but other organizations whose job is to build, you know, healthy and strong neighborhoods, like whether that be settlement organizations, you know, YMCAs, um, other other sort of neighborhood, organi- like neighborhood houses and the like that uh, have convening power, like they already have a great deal of trust in places with, especially communities that sometimes uh, have had uh, challenging experiences because they are um, coming in and not, they're having to figure out a whole new culture or um, they are at greater risk of marginalization. And those are like the the communities that I think we really want to make sure have a voice in our political process as well. So um, how do we enhance the ability of those organizations to sort of have a role in, in civic education, civic literacy, okay. uh, is one thing that we've been exploring. And um, interestingly, like for them, we found that many organizations are keen to do it, uh, especially if it's nonpartisan. But they don't often themselves necessarily know how do you begin, how do you, right. where do you, 
uh, begin a conversation around politics because it's been it's like a muscle that everybody has let atrophy a bit and no yeah. one remembers how to work out. <laughs> I, I think that's that's a really good metaphor and like kind of use it or lose it uh, with mm-hmm. with democracy really in, in mm-hmm. general. Um, and I, the report mentioned unions as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a guy of the left, as I'm sure you picked up listening to, to past episodes. And I think they, they've been really important at you know fostering a culture of, of workplace democracy as, insofar as they've been able to. Um, and I think like I, I think it's probably fair to say that you're familiar with Robert Putnam's like social capital thesis and bowling alone and all that. Uh, and I think he, he outlined some structural trends away from the institutions mm-hmm. that enabled us to use our democratic power sort of on a day-to-day basis. Um, do you think that there is a prospect for reviving those organizations, not necessarily just labor unions, but organizations or sort of play, like democratic spaces where people can, citizens can use and exercise democratic power on a sort of day-to-day basis? I think, I hope so, and I think it has to, pro- it, I'm the most optimistic that it will begin in those sort of less formalized spaces or less quote capital P political spaces mm-hmm. um, like the other opportunity of course is like you can encourage people to join political parties of yeah. which are in theory membership based organizations as well but what we've seen is yeah, good caveat <laughs> um, people like have a bit of an aversion to yeah. like dipping their toe that far in uh, without the sort of I think sense of understanding what it's all about um, where they do have much greater trust sort of towards these entities, community groups, mm-hmm. or, you know, in the case perhaps of unions and workplaces, where they already, like, live and work and right. are familiar with them. And I said, that is why I think that going where they are and seeing, trying to take advantage of places that people already convene is so important yeah. rather than... Um, trying to create new kind of artificial spaces. Spaces. Yeah. So... Uh, I'm. I said. I think our experience has been pretty positive in that many organizations too have sort of also had a conscious a consciousness, uh, a raise awareness raising moment with everything going on. That oh, in addition to all the things that we are also supposed to be doing to help, um, you know, strong and strong neighborhoods and communities, like you know, helping making sure people have the language skills they ha- need, that they have sure. social supports and job training and daycare and act, you know like all the things yeah. that are required um also in the mix of that is citizenship sure. and um what is responsible citizenship how do we help prepare people for that role so i think i think that's where it can happen how how it will take shape is an interesting question and like whether there's an re- enabling role for others like government to sort of support uh sort of a, the civil society efforts um, is, a, is a worthwhile one because I think Robert Putman and others have sort of said like part of uh, the six it was partly cultural that these you know in the yeah. 60s, 70s these huge mass member organizations yeah. were so yeah. successful well, it's but not it, even so much cultural as like a product of like economic structures and political structures yeah. as well right like it's uh, it's we didn't just stop you know having unions because people were like oh like I don't really like going to the meeting so much right there was like a conscious Mm-hmm. You know, political decisions made that serve to weaken those and other institutions of kind of similar events. Um, you also mentioned media, uh, and media I think is another one that's that's tricky because like you, the trend is away from local reporting, and especially like in Saskatchewan where I used to live, for instance, uh, there are no reporters covering the legislature full time, mm. um, and it's hard to 
you know, foster sort of local democratic connections if you don't have a good information source. And, you know, we can talk all day about how much information really matters in democratic politics and how much people respond to it and everything. But it is worrying that the, the trend in media, especially when it's kind of outlined or sort of pointed to as an example of where we can do better, it, the structural trend is very much away from the direction I think Samara would like to see it go and where I would personally like to see it go as well. Mm-hmm. No, and this is um, certainly something like we obviously have identified, we're not the only ones. Um, we haven't been able to sort of pro- like figure out a way to overhaul it either. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a tall but, order. <laughs> um, it, is, it is, I think, good that we've had reports uh, by like the Shattered Mirror report that the Public Policy Forum released uh, earlier this year come out that have really clearly articulated the sort of uh, mm-hmm. using evidence and data, the picture of where we are in Canada, the trend lines that we're going, if there's not a, a sort of solutions found. Um, and they were creative about trying to propose some ways to su- better support funding that would enhance, quote, like civic affairs journalism, sure. which is the kind I think we're really interested in, in terms of like covering coverage of politics. Um, it's everyone in the news industry, I think, recognizes it's still like this, mo- this they're in this transition as they figure out a new model post-advertising revenue. Right. Um, I think there it and we're going to continue in it's an evolving conversation because to the rise of fake news and so that has actually put a lot more I think onus back on the on in the courts of organizations like Facebook and Twitter to figure out okay we to be totally passive platforms is no longer something that um, we can assume will be good enough even in the eyes of the public too so we have some new responsibility to figure out as well so um that, that this is going to be a very, I think, big conversation. As, as you know, journalists are themselves are divided on how to move forward, given, again, what is the proper role of government yeah. in journalism in Canada? It's a good question. Again, I think maybe where we going back in Samar's view, if you're playing the long game and looking at um, the long-term investments, which is sort of how we thought about uh, the recommendations we made in the report, if you have... Um, even that that more foundational civic knowledge in place in the citizens you're maybe making media readers news readers who want who recognize the importance of having good information from journalists right. as well which i'd say was something that maybe we so decoupled do, a bit over right. the last 20 years where we sort of thought again like oh people will just want like these these things will that civic affairs journalism will be self-propagated sure. because uh, every, like it will need it. And now with the measurement of eyeballs, the challenge yeah. has been for newspapers to, to justify um, investing in it. Yeah. So it's kind of the like media Keynesianism, sort of stimulating aggregate demand instead of concentrating on supply. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> building building the full the full democratic kind of ecosystem, I guess, or the, the the full picture of the the system. Yeah, you guys should start calling it democratic stimulus. <laughs> we did we did joke how far we wanted to take the infrastructure <laughs> metaphor, yeah. and then realized maybe we were yeah. uh, stretching a little too far, leaning too far over our skis, so to speak. But work, work innovation in there. <laughs> uh, so one actually fact that or one uh, finding that from your survey data that really stuck out to me was. Um, the job we touched on political parties earlier, mm-hmm. but uh, the Canadian Canadians' ratings of the job political parties are doing went up like nine percent over the last few years, which to me is surprising, given that I don't 
think they're doing anything differently than they were two years ago. But like, do you have any thoughts on what caused that uptick? Is it kind of a sunny ways hangover sort of thing? Or uh... that's a great question. It surprised us too um, that you know when we set out to sort of create the the three sixty two years ago. We were trying to find ways to just talk about democracy in, in more accessible ways for people and in measurements that people might sort of understand is intuitively like uh, appropriate and like one of the ways is like self like how do Canadians think about the roles that MPs are doing, the roles mm-hmm. that parties are doing and asking them to sort of self-evaluate. And I think the assumption at the time was like these are things that are not going to change a whole lot. Like maybe mm-hmm. they'll go up or down one or two percentage points, but we're not going to see a lot of change in that attitude because yeah. like those things are pretty fixed and um, and, and where we might see more changes in things like participation, like, you know, especially with uh, an election, you have an opportunity to volunteer more in campaigns, right. to donate more to campaigns, to attend more political meetings and to vote, you know, mm-hmm. and those numbers would be going up with a wider sort of up and down range. But instead, instead, we kind of saw the opposite happen right. where a lot of the participation and behavior stuff was very pretty flat or consistent yeah. and then the attitudes were changing yeah and it's, it's interesting because it's you think maybe there should have been a bit of a feedback loop like that it's through experience that you form your opinions but instead it seems like these opinions are being formed by things beyond even your direct experience right. uh has so what what drove that uptick the the hangover of the sunny ways is i think a a, a smart hypothesis around the fact that um, the 2015 election, it wasn't just, I think, the notion of, uh, of like, oh, it's the, that for partisan liberals, like, that, that yeah. they're back in power and everybody feels fine. It was more, I think people felt their sense, their own sort of democratic, like, it was a proud democratic moment that, you know, there was um, such a, a sort of a flourish of turnout, a, the, the, a transition of power. Uh, that was done peacefully that I think people really felt more like oh like this is what it like Canada being reminded again like what it means to be sure. a democratic citizen in a democratic country and feeling kind of proud of that and and then having a very long kind of uh, hangover effect of like oh that felt so good to right. be able to exercise our power yeah. as citizens yeah. the bad man is gone as uh, Ron Ambrose put it <laughs> um, you said you get you can say that Laurent. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, it is, the, but the fact that it hung on for so long is, is yeah, rather impressive. unique yeah. for, I think, any any other sort of mark, poll, polling firm that has been tracking things like trust was surprised at how long that sort of uptick lasted. Yeah. And um, very significant. I mean, you know, yeah. 9% is like, or 9 percentage points rather, is yeah. not a small amount. No, and, and, and like I guess it, I don't know. Obvi- there may be a readjustment in, in the process that's coming now. Right. In the, in the last uh, since like the start of the year, as um, you get further into a term of government, and and but parties like the NDP and the Conservatives are renewing with their right. leadership races right now. Um, maybe Canadians like this data suggests there is a bit more room for them for someone to come in and sort of say like, okay, like we have a moment to capitalize on with Canadians being maybe a little bit more open-minded to the possibility that we're that being involved in a party is a good thing yeah can we can we cast our net and bring them further in and show that we can be different than what they assume what a political culture is about inside a party yeah that would that would be great yeah Yeah. 
So, Samara put out a book a couple years ago uh, called Tragedy of the Commons, and one of the big takeaways for me from that book was uh, the emphasis on civility and decorum in the House of Commons as being a really important part of Canadian politics. And I think that this report also echoes that. Like One of the, the big recommendations is about uh, having more civility and decorum in the House, which I agree would be nice. On the other hand, if you look at the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, they're actually pretty like respectably run institutions as institutions. Like the, the day-to-day decorum is pretty good, but no one would accuse the U.S. of having like a non-toxic political culture. So, to what degree is that like? Is there a real established link there? And because for me, I get the sense that while civility would be nice, I don't really see it as having direct feedback into political culture in like a direct way. Hmm. Interesting. Um, like, it's a it's a good question around. Is this uh, what like <laughs> which is the chicken and which is the egg right, exactly. of sorts? Um, I think civility and maybe specifically the heckling that right. often is the most visible part of our politics when we talk about what happens in the House of Commons question period is what is most watched mm-hmm. and most reported on uh, means that that does actively most actively shape Canadians impressions of politics now Lauren is someone who works on the hill you know that that is not a representative right. um, 45 minutes of what the house typically looks at or looks like or sounds like uh, but it is something that shapes probably most actively Canadians perceptions of what politics is right. all about and it's maybe not a question of uh the political culture on the hill but creating the political culture that canadians see and want to like respect and sure. be involved in part of the thing that we talk about in tragedy in the commons is it that politics is a kind of a funny business compared to you know any other sort of uh public narrative that you know when you're talking about like uh, sale of coffee mm-hmm. you don't see Tim Hortons and Starbucks sort of slagging one another because they know that would be overall bad for si- like yeah, coffee sales exactly so instead um, they they compete in a more kind of positive way like trying to brand differently yeah. uh, politics does allow for one another to sort of slag each other and we've seen I think in the house um, at, and it's not that there's no place for heckling. I, I think it, it can happen. Uh, the challenge is it's not the sort of witty. Uh, yeah, it's not great, right? Jocular yeah. put down that, or like the the sort of thing that where you know it can be it yeah. can be effective. Instead, it can it often, as we've heard uh, from exited MPs and from sitting MPs who were surveying about heckling, um, it's just kind of nasty. Yeah, really nasty stuff. And it's not even about ideas. It's about how you sound, what you look like. Um, and I think when we talk about it that way, in terms of civility, like no other workplace would let you kind of get away with yeah. that kind of personal attacks. Sure. Uh, it is a lot more beer league hockey game than it is like a Paris salon circa 1785, right? So yeah, like let's let's elevate our institution on that, sure. in that front. And I think it would, Maybe it won't be the the trigger for radically changing political culture, but it it very well I think could 
help to make the place something that yeah. more Canadians aspire to want to be a part of, sure. whether as voters or as somebody more actively involved yeah. in, in politics. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, just, I think it would be nice because I agree that it is mm-hmm. like very dumb and aggressively so. Yeah, and it's uh, something we like, like as much as like some of these changes like enhanced civic education uh, will take uh, are really complicated things like acting better. <laughs> it's yeah. something you can kind of do tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. We'll all agree yeah. to, to sort of agree that this is important enough. Yeah. I agree that it is low hanging fruit. Exactly. Yeah, much easier to do than like rebuilding democratic political space, like at the civic level. That's a yeah, a little little of a taller order. So also one of the recommendations is empowering MPs, kind of on the like both what Samara said in the book and also sort of the the Michael Chong style reform act kind of thing. Um, And I, I find that that is very much ties into an idealized notion of the Westminster system and how it works. I don't think the Westminster system has ever really worked like that. And also, I think if you look at independent MPs, not that a degree of independence is bad. I think like we probably have over overwhipped MPs in, in our system. But once again, if you look at the U.S., they have very like very loose party discipline. But once again, no one would accuse them of having a non-toxic political culture. Um, but it's, I, I agree that basically with the, the basic point that we, we could have MPs that are a little more free to do their jobs and more free to hold the government to account, have more resources to do that. I think that's all important. Uh, but do you think that there are lessons we can learn from non-Westminster systems or even sort of like a non-legislative mode of politics that could help sort of help our opposition and government MPs sort of do their jobs better? Hmm, that's a great... A great question, and I uh, I think we like agree more fundamentally on um, the the point that this isn't necessarily about like having a parliament of independence, right, but yeah. uh, having a little bit more room for uh, a dialogue even right. within a party's own members. And I and I take like that does often happen in caucus, mm-hmm. uh, which is important. Yeah, but it's sometimes I think too bad that it can't happen slightly more in a more public way yeah, without it, there being a the media. down and that's not just parties but also yeah. the, the feedback loop with it's, media yeah inevitably there's a headline like you know like leader losing control of it and it's like you know you get a hundred you know a hundred odd adults in a room two of them are going to disagree on something right like it's just that's normal and I wish we could just normalize that uh, but yeah in that sense it's almost the, the problem is more in the public sphere than it is in parliament because parliament is reacting, or rather like parties and party establishments are reacting to the external pressure that you know, media coverage of you know, disagreement over political issues among adults who are politically engaged, who would have thought, uh, happens, right? So I don't know, that was- It's, a, it is a, it's a, but your point about like, can we learn something from other non-Westminster systems? I mean, well, quite frankly, I think we, could, we can A, get better at um, understanding the variations of, of any like all other kind of democratic systems, uh, in a more thorough and thoughtful way. Uh, I mean, some it's interesting to sometimes engage even on our own question of West Westminster West, Westminster and sort of say like, well, in Canada we've done it this way because it's always been done this way, and it's how it's done in Britain. And in right. fact, in Britain it's not done that way. Yeah, exactly. We like <laughs> take the claim of like, oh, yeah. this is how it's supposed to work, and realize yeah. either they've managed to change it, yeah, as quote the mother parliament, or yeah. we sort of are misrepresenting yeah. their own legacy of history. Yeah. So um, what is, what is I think, so impressive about our system is that it has managed to be pretty adaptable, um, all things considered, given yeah. like 
Canada is a very different country than um, than our than the UK is just in terms of geography, language, right. population, etc. Um, other other politics. I think in the U.S. example, the most interesting comparison that often comes up is between committees, right? Because um, many will of uh, members here have expressed. Uh, and I'm speaking on sort of the exit interview side of things, frustration with their experience on committees. They spend a lot of their time mm -hmm. uh, in committee meetings, and it can feel a bit, at worst, a waste of time at best. Um, they've managed to come up with a report that has now collected some dust. Mm. And part of the system in the U.S. is that they've structured their committees around is, um, you know, committees have some greater independence. They also have, like, a process of greater seniority sort right. of built in so that there's a sense of reward for sticking around, getting to know a file, yeah. accruing influence on that issue area. And over your career, like, you can uh, begin to have, or career, but, like, time in office, a kind of greater sense of actually having a policy contribution then maybe our our system uh, does often allow because MPs move around a lot on committees. Um, there's not sort of the same sense of seniority, not quite the same sense of independence. So, in that area, it might be. I think there is something to perhaps learn uh, or emulate from sure. a non-Westminster system. Yeah, because as is, I think whips can just basically move members around between committees more or less at will. Uh, which does seem, yeah, from the point of view of accruing expertise and you know learning about a file, it's not great, and it sort of undermines MPs' jobs to, if they're opposition MPs, to learn about what the government is doing and be able to hold them to account in an intelligent way. Uh, so that that's a that's a really good point. Uh, that is all the questions I had prepared. Uh, so thank you very much for coming by. Hugely appreciated, and uh, enjoy the rest of your your brief trip to Ottawa. Thank you. It was great. Um, I, you really dug into the report in a way that I think few other journalists I've spoken to have. So thank I you. I am not a journalist. <laughs> well, <laughs> commentators. We try. It was great. Thanks so much, Jane. Pleasure. Once again, a big thanks to Jane Hilderman of Samara for joining me for that interview. Uh, it was a real pleasure. Uh, yeah, sound, sounded very interesting. Yeah, so uh, hopefully, and I guess if, if you're someone who has a cool story to tell us, like, get in touch. Yeah, or like, rep represent an interesting organization. Yeah, or like, well, we'd love to chat. Somehow tangentially involved in politics. Yeah, like, we, we would legitimately love to chat. So shoot us a DM. Uh, it'll be great. Uh, Tian, do you have anything else you want to say? No, that uh, that rounds it up. Right. Uh, we're hoping to do another episode in a couple days. Yeah, so we've got actually a lot to talk about. Stay tuned for that. It has been a busy week, so uh, we, will, we will have some fresh hot content for you Sunday. Absolutely. All right, everyone, thanks. Have a great rest of the week. And uh, follow us on Twitter at Short Pants Pod. Happy Easter. Happy Easter.